Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is VP of Viva Sound, Drew Waters. But first of all, let's talk about the Sony Music Payouts. Yes, Sony sold its Spotify stock about a month ago, maybe a little more, and everyone expected that money to go to the bottom line of Sony. And in fact, they turned around and kind of shocked everybody and said, nope, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give some of this money back to the artists. And sure enough, they did. Checks are starting to arrive, and some of them are really large. For instance, the original Santana band, this is the original guys, received $150,000. So that sounds pretty good, but Metallica, Dr. Dre, and Pharrell Williams, among others, have received checks near or around a million dollars. So this is a check that no one expected, basically. So if you think it's only large artists, it's not true. There has been some reports, mostly from artist managers, that their artists are getting between ten and twenty thousand dollars. In other words, a check comes in the mail, and no one expects it. It's always nice to get mailbox money. How is this derived? Well, it's a percentage of Sony revenue. So it depends on how much you sell and what your percentage of Sony Music's overall revenue is. Plus how much of that revenue is actually generated on Spotify. And then it's multiplied by a royalty rate, and that's what you come up with. So it doesn't take much, actually, to come up with some big checks, and that's what we're beginning to see. Warner Brothers is different, however. If you were Warner's artist, you might not be seeing those big checks. The reason why is Warner said they're going to turn around and they're going to give a large portion of the money back to the artist from their sale of Spotify stock, which was uh, about a month or so earlier than Sony's. The difference is they're saying this is going towards the money that you already owe Warner Brothers. So in other words, they're recouping the money that's owed to them. So if you are $15,000 in the hole to Warner Brothers, for instance, and all of a sudden they say, okay, there's $10,000 that you're getting from this sale. Well, we're just going to subtract it from your debt. So instead of your debt being 15000 now it's 5000 In other words, a lot of that money is now staying within the Warner Music Group instead of being paid out to artists. Now, of course, if you don't owe Warner's money, then you're going to be receiving a check. So that just leaves Universal Music. And they've not sold any Spotify equity yet. And they also haven't announced any plans on what they're going to do if they sell their equity. So we don't know what's going to happen there. And of course, they're the biggest record label. There's more artists on UMG than all the others. So it should be interesting to see what happens. Again, there's been no announcement on any of the sales stock. And in fact, it's probably a good idea because the stock has been going up. Surprisingly enough, no one expected it to go up as much as it has. I think it's up about 10% or so. So they're keeping it, and we'll see what ends up happening. But anyway, if you're a Sony artist, you've probably just received a check, or you're going to receive one pretty soon. Some nice mailbox money. <laughs> If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and was the number one bestseller on the Amazon Music Business Books chart. 
It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. And once again, thank you for all your support for this book. Couldn't have made number one without you guys. Thanks very much. Now, here's a big announcement. It sort of went under the radar, but it's a big deal. The RIAA, which is the Record Industry Association that all the major labels are part of, they're considering a new vinyl standard, or at least some changes to the vinyl standard. And you might wonder, well, wait a second, well, why? <laughs> because everything seems to be working pretty well. In fact, vinyl that you buy today is compatible with the vinyl from 1960 or 1950 even. And also the turntables and cartridges from 1950 are compatible with the vinyl records of today, so why do we need a change? Yeah, good question. Everybody's kind of scratching their head on it. This is the first change since 1978 for vinyl, and of course, there hasn't been a reason to change anything. A lot of people are thinking that this doesn't have anything to do with the playback nature of vinyl, and it might be more with the manufacturing specs, because really there's an antiquated supply chain when you think about it, the way vinyl is made. So you cut a lacquer disc, and then if you're going to make a lot of copies, a lot of records, then you have to make multiple metal parts. So basically you take this master and you electroplate it, and that's what becomes the stamper. And you might have to electroplate it many times. Every time you do that, the quality goes down. And let's face it, it's kind of a horror show when it comes to the chemicals involved in this. So everybody wants to get rid of all of these things and make it a little more seamless. Well, how are they going to do this? The thoughts are it's going to be with HD vinyl. HD Vinyl is sort of around. It's announced. There's a website. You go to hdvinyl.org, O-R-G, and you can find out all about it. And what this basically is doing, it's cutting the stamper on ceramic via a laser. And the beauty of this is because it's a laser that's cutting it, it's more precise. You get rid of all the chemical baths and the metal parts and all of those things for something that doesn't violate OSHA standards. And you come up with this ceramic stamper, which lasts for a really long time. Unlike metal parts, metal parts wear out. So if you get record number one, record stamped number one, it sounds a lot better than number 10,000 because the metal stamper is actually wearing out. Well, it's not going to happen anymore when we go to HD vinyl. Not only that, you get better frequency response and up to 30% more playing time. More playing time has been a big deal, but it's kind of been a blessing in disguise in a way because you're limited to 24, 25 minutes per side, which is kind of like the perfect listening bite. When we get into the CD level and we have these hour-long CDs, people really don't want to listen that long. Now, when we come out to maybe 30 minutes aside on vinyl, I actually don't think that's good. All of the records that I loved, and if you go back and look at all the hits, they've been between 28 and you know maybe 40 minutes at the most. They're not very long. We like that a lot more. I don't think people ever feel that they're getting more for their money when there are more songs, especially if it's a song they don't want. So we'll see what happens because none of this has really been announced, just that there are going to be some changes, and the changes are going to come at the beginning of next year. Is there a need? Well, 
Don't think so, but again, if this has anything to do with HD vinyl, I think that probably explains the whole thing. So we'll see coming soon. This will be really good for the vinyl industry, providing <laughs> all the changes go in the right direction. If you ever wondered why musical metadata is so important, you're about to find out in this excellent conversation with this week's guest. Drew Waters has gone from high school dropout to PhD all in the name of music. Starting out as a working class electric bass player as a teenager, he switched to upright in order to enroll in the prestigious Eastman School of Music. He later received his doctorate in jazz and contemporary performance from NYU, but instead of going on the road as a touring bass player or working long hours in the studio, he took a left turn into the record label world. First as the head of studio operations for Capitol Records, then Vice President of Archives for Universal Music Group, after stints as a dean at both Expression College and Art Institute of Hollywood. Drew is now VP of Viva Sound, a company that specializes in music metadata that's also helped to create the DDEX standard now used by the industry. During the interview, we talked about the differences between upright and electric bass that you might not know, the importance of metadata when it comes to credits and getting paid, music producers' delivery requirements to labels these days, and Viva Sound's role in helping both labels and producers. We spoke via phone from his office at United Recording in Hollywood. You have a very interesting resume. As a matter of fact, when I look at it, I think, wow, it's pretty diverse, and there's a lot of different angles that you come from. So let's go back to the beginning here. You were a bass player first, right? Exactly, yeah. It, it all started playing me as a bass player. And um, in one sense, it was my academic demise because in high school, I was playing so much. Um, like I started doing gigs when I was 14 or so. And um, because like any city, there's hardly any bass players. So I, I lucked out and I was playing with a bunch of guys who were older. And, uh, you know, they, they, it turns out the lead guitar player was talking to my parents, making sure that I was, you know, okay playing in these bars. And then... Um, it's funny because eventually, because I was doing so many gigs, I actually dropped out of high school. Like I'm a high school dropout. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. And um, it wasn't until later that um, I realized it wasn't um, it wasn't really me. Um, like my dad used to always say, my my intelligence lies elsewhere. I <laughs> mean, it didn't quite work with high school, but it worked with university really well. Mainly because I had to figure out how to learn. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know how. I learned. So, um, it was, it was a lot of work at first because I had to take, um, multiple notebooks for each class, to make it through school. And then after a while I realized, okay, this is how I do This is how, how I have to do it. And that, you know, then my confidence went up and then I kept on, you know, going through, uh, to NYU. Where did you grow up at? I'm originally from a city outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, I was there until I was about 25. Then I moved to Rochester to go to Eastman uh, School of Music, music school and music school there, to get my master's there. And then I loved being in the States a lot. And then the easiest way to, to stay and keep doing gigs was to be in school. So I applied to NYU. And I always joked that it's a clerical error. Some guy named Walters from Indiana was supposed to get in, but they let me in instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I learned, I, I, I really, things really changed when I moved to the States. Like when I moved to Rochester, I was dealing with a lot of amazing young players and I thought, well, if this is how I identify myself, I got a lot of work to do. 
So it was a real kick in the pants. Well, yeah, Eastman's always been known for being a great music school and having great players. So just the fact that you get in there is impressive, I think. Yeah, it was it was tough because up until that point, I was an electric bass player. And then I went down, a friend of mine had gone there years ago, so I went down to t- and talked to them. And there's a piano player named Bill Dobbins, and he said, you know, we can't let you in unless you play double bass. Uh-huh. And I went, oh, okay. And I said, why is that? And he goes, well, the electric bass is just a bastardization of a real instrument. And I went, okay, that's the, you know, that's just the culture, right? I wasn't going to try to knock it. So I went out and bought a double bass and uh, took lessons. And then the next year I came back and auditioned and uh, got in. Then when, so I played double bass for a couple of years after that, but it didn't really work with my hands. You know, it's the same same name, very different instrument, electric bass and double bass, but the geography of negotiating that neck is like a completely different thing. And um, that was actually the crux of my PhD. But the point is, when I went to NYU, I said, you know, are there instrument requirements? And they said, no, you just have to play one because you have to do recitals as well as like, it's a PhD, so there's a, a large research component, but there's a DMA part of it, which is Doctor of Musical Arts, which is the performance side. It's like a dual degree. I said, cool. So then I sold the double bass and <laughs> just focused on electric bass. So I went back to that. Well, tell me about your doctorate. This sounds very interesting. Yeah, it was actually, it was sort of a reflection of what was going on in the previous 15 years of my life because how to reconcile the, the, the differences between the electric bass and the double bass and how electric bass is completely accepted in, you know, pop music, rock music, folk, etc. but it's not, not accepted. It's barely accepted in um, jazz music and not accepted at all in uh, classical music. So what I, what I did was I tried to just, try to find out, I knew why, or it's almost like I knew, I just knew that it wasn't, but I wanted, wanted to know why. And then I used a bass player named Steve Swallow as an example. Him and his life partner, Carla Blay, are two jazz musicians, piano and uh, bass and piano, respectively. Steve oh, yeah. and Carla. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, I'm sure you know. Yeah. And um, so he, he did this thing where he was at a, a NAMM show back in the 60s, and he was doing, he was playing with Gary, uh, Gary Burton at a, for Muser Vibes. The NAMM show was in Chicago, I think, at a hotel. And he was beside the Gibson booth. And he saw an EB4 there, and he thought, oh my gosh, like I'm not even supposed to go near those things because there's such a stigma attached to it. And then he picked it up, took it up to his hotel room for an hour, and said, said to Gary, I'll meet you, meet you for dinner later. So those six or seven hours went by. He lost track of time and space and where he was and what he was doing because he was so enthralled with this instrument. And then same thing happened to him at a very different level because he's such an accomplished player. I'm not trying to compare myself to him, but um, he had to figure, he realized soon after he couldn't play both. It had to be one or the other. And then he was trying to figure out how to bridge, bridge the two and bring double bass sensibilities to the electric bass. And he spent years trying, trying to do that and trying to get that sort of tone. So he was one of the few people that crossed back over into the jazz world on electric bass, where if they don't use Steve Swallow, they use a double bass player. And I mm. thought, man, this is really interesting. Yeah. The great thing is, he's alive, and he was he is verbose in a good way. So I, I'd ask him a question on email, and the guy would send me all this first-person content, pages and pages of it, because he just loved to talk and type. But he was an intelligent. He is an intelligent dude. So I got a, a ton of great content about his his life and his philosophy and you know, trials and 
um, successes that he had on the electric bass. So they did that, bunch of transcriptions of his music and compared his playing to uh, jazz double bassists. So it was great. What was the conclusion? Well, the conclusion, the conclusion was while on electric bass, you use one finger per fret, like four fingers, four frets, double bass, because, because the geography of the neck is so much different and larger, your pinky and your ring finger double up to be one finger. So it's sort of three fingers over, over the space of uh, three, four fingers over the space of three frets. So there's a bit of, you have to overcome certain uh, limitations because your hand only has so much strength. But as a result, you, accom- you accommodate or you compensate that by becoming a better melodic player and making use of the, the construction of the, of the instrument where there's use of open notes a lot because it fills uh, time and space and a certain pitch, whether it's ghosted or not. And then um, Steve bridged those. He loved the, the, the tone of the double bass but didn't want to play it anymore. So he took those, those concepts and applied it to electric bass. So I think it, and the, the idea being um, he's an innovator in, in the sense that he um, took two seemingly disparate concepts, bridged them, and arguably made it a you know successful musical experience. Wow. Okay, I never realized. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that it's actually. That'd be great. Quick read. It's a friendly read. Yeah, it's cool tone. Like it's not you know it's. I mean, there's academic portions of it, but it's, yeah. it's an easy read. I mean, you've written a thousand textbooks, so you'll get it right away. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so from there then, you taught at some colleges, right? Yeah, so my whole point was I had such a bad education experience. I thought, well, I want to turn that around for others. So I have all this empathy for students that don't quite fit in the, the, the mold. I couldn't teach high school because it's just not my thing. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a good high school teacher. But um, I knew I could te- make an impact at, uh, the university level. So I thought this is a goal. I want to become a professor. And I did. And I was teaching um, upstate New York for the SUNY system. And that was an uh, amazing experience. I was, um, so I went through the whole thing. Like I was uh, part-time adjunct, visiting assistant professor, um, associate um, assistant professor, and then moved to CSU Monterey Bay and ran the recording department up there. Because during this time, I'd done a lot of recording, um, sort of self, not self-taught, but as taught by other people outside of, outside of institutional education. I, I just hung out in studios quite a bit and asked you know, a ton of questions like most of us must have done back then. And so I had the wherewithal to create curriculum around these recording concepts. So when I was at CSU Monterey Bay, I ran the uh, recording department and um, it was great. And... Monterey, California is a little bit isolated. So I thought I got to bring in guest lectures and guest, guest artists and guest speakers. And I brought in a guy from EMI Publishing here in Los Angeles. And uh, he saw, amongst other people, and he saw what I was doing with this little program and said, hey, you know, this, the VP of um, Studio Operations, Archives and Strategy is opening up at Capitol Records. Doesn't, help, doesn't open up very often. Would you like the gig? And I was six, six weeks away from tenure. Huh. And I thought, I know. <laughs> so you know, you know what that means. Yeah. And I know. So it was a, it was a tough decision. And um, one sense it was an easy decision, but in a sense it was, it was a little tough. And uh, so he said, we're also going to be bought out by UMG soon. 
Like that's, it's, it's all but definite. So if you get the gig, it's only going to be for three months and then they're going to lay you off and give you a package. And, uh, I said, okay, it's worth it. I want that title on my CV and I want the experience. And, uh, that three months led to three years and then they bought me out. And then, um, I thought, well, what should I do now? I thought I'll go back to academia. And, um, so I was a dean at a college and then I was commuting and I didn't want to be away from my boys any longer here in LA. So then I took another dean position down here in LA which leads me pretty close to where I am now because there's a company that does digital asset management for all three major labels. We talked, you and I talked about this before, what I'm doing now. And I had done this procurement exercise for um, capital. We were looking for an archiving vaulting solution. And so I got to know this company really well. They're the ones um, as part of an approval process that brought them into um, the larger um UMG network of labels and Deborah, my EVP called and said, Hey, you know, you know, our business model really well. Would you like to um, check it out or, you know, come and work for us? So I, I said, yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm VP at uh, Viva Sound at the moment, which is great. I love this gig. Yeah. I want to hit that in a second, but let's go back to universal. So you were in charge of the archives, right? That's right. Yeah. Now here's the problem that everybody has with archives, and it may be different now, so please bring me up to speed on this, but at one point in time, the archives are so incomplete in what was actually there, and we've all heard the stories about master tapes that were thrown out on the trash bin, and you know what's been found there, and, and whatever. There's tons of horror stories about this. Yeah, it's all true. Is it better now, though? It's a lot better now, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of companies and a lot of great people that they've hired over the years beyond just Beyond me and my company, there's a lot of great companies that are taking care of it. And um, see, a lot of the tapes weren't accurately accounted for. A lot of them were pancaked uh, because they wanted to... The One of the stories I heard was that a lot of the tapes were pancaked because of the um, aluminum. Oh, the flanges. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to salvage that. <laughs> and there's, there, I know there wasn't a lot of care that was put into the tapes but also artifacts of the production process where there's things called art flats and they are four by four cardboard, corrugated cardboard, four by four cardboard envelopes. And in that, the art directors put on the, put all of the component parts of the uh, artwork and album making process in there. Like, mm -hmm. so there would be still proof print slides and negatives and mock-ups. So I saw you know, four different versions of the Imagine, John Lennon Imagine album cover that the art, art director that Lennon may or may not have even seen sitting in these. Someone had the presence of mind to save all this. Wow. And then at one point back in the 80s, somebody that was in a position of power thought that these are worthless, they could never be monetized or not of cultural significance and trashed half of them. <sighs> threw them out. I know. I know. So can you imagine, like, I held the one of the billiard a picture of the billiard ball on the cover of Venus and Mars. Remember that old yeah. McCartney album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had white gloves on at the time. But there's there's across North America there's these vaults where all these um, treasures in terms of all the artwork. There's 1.6 million proofs, print slides, and negatives just that will never be never see the light of day. Mainly because it's it's hard to convince 
And I get it. It's hard to convince or capture someone's imagination, usually a CFO, to say, look, if we could put this out in a deluxe edition, and it'd be audio, video, print, and it's digital content, and uh, people want to see this, but nobody really wants to take the risk. So it'll probably just sit there for another 50 years until someone uh, comes up with a, a quick, cheap, easy, high-resolution way to, to transfer all this. Wow. You know, in terms of like high art, in terms of the Western world, there's a lot of it across all these labels that, that may or may not see the light of day. It's all there. And um, there's a lot of great people at Capital, for example, in the, in the vaults. Jack Arenas is one of them that takes care of these tapes one by one. And there's like 600,000 hmm. in a small team where he's doing triage on them all the time and uh, prepping them for uh, flat, uh, flat trans- high-res flat transfers. So there's, there's hope, which is great. Well, speaking of which then, so we're in the digital age and we have been for quite a while now, which means the masters are different. We're way beyond tape at this point. Well, it must be different because you're getting a master on a hard drive, I would imagine, or at one point in time there were CDs or there were DVDs or whatever. It's changed, yeah, it's changed in one sense where a lot of, the, we, we do fulfillment for all three major labels where we verify uh, metadata enrichment in terms of validation and then long-term archiving. It's like a three-step process. And most of our delivery, deliveries are through a digital um, uploader that we have. Mm-hmm. So there's a URL. Um, they drag and drop the entire console session file with all the d- derivative parts, you know, 5,000 plus files within that, all the stems and all the mixes. Basically, it's the minimum delivery requirement from the, the label sort of dictates to the producer what the producer has to deliver. And it includes everything that you've seen probably two or three times a day for the past, you know, couple decades where it's the entire total session file, um, all the mixed types, um, vocal up, vocal down, clean, explicit, radio, acapella, instrumental, and then all the different stem types, whatever that particular A&R person has asked for. So we, we sometimes, you know, get hard drives and worst case scenario, we've received hard drives in a, a, a UPS box wrapped in a Holiday Inn type towel and <laughs> the only identifier, you know, the only identifier on the outside says Avastor. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's black, it's Avastor. <laughs> That's, those are the only identifying features. So people, you know, I have conversations with people that have gone through the transition from 100% analog uh, during the transition to analog and digital in the 90s and then, you know, they're still working in digital age. And they said, oh, you know, some people say, you know, back in the day, there was, you know, the second engineer used to be accountable for all this. And I said, well, kind of, but when you, when you look at those tapes and the sheets that are inserted in them in terms of the metadata, dude, there's like nine variables. It's like who, what, where, when, the producer's name, the artist's name, nobody else, and some song names and, and time, right? That's it. You might get lucky that you might get the EQ settings from the, that were included from the, Mastering engineer. So it, it was easier to, to collect metadata back then, mainly because the field sets were like, you can count on two hands. But these days, with the, the, the DDEX standard and the metadata that's required to get it delivered to a DSP, uh, those, those um, fields are, you know, can be within the hundreds of different fields in terms of how far you want to enrich that asset with metadata. So yeah, once in one sense it's changed, and, and you know, another sense of business is is super similar and recognizable. To say if you, you were to freeze someone in '79 and they woke up now, you know, there's, there's no mistake that 
Pro Tools unfolds from left to right, just like a piece of tape does. And, you know, because it was created by those people with analog sensibilities, it looks a lot like a, a console. Um, the delivery spec has changed in that um, because it's going to be streamed onto um, most, like nine times out of 10 onto a phone, to get it there and to get proper crediting, as well as those people that want to get um, you know, paid for what they do, it's, it's in everyone's best interest to collect as much metadata as possible at the point of inception. Long answer, I know, but... I want to get there in a second, actually, and we'll talk more about VivaSound in a bit. But even back in the analog days, there was a problem with data. And it, there's a story that Ken Scott told me, the, the great engineer, producer, Ken Scott. Yeah, yeah. He was, for the last few years of George Harrison's life, Ken was the archivist and he ran his library. They were going to put out All Things Must Pass again. And it was going to be a deluxe edition. And Ken was trying to find out who played on it. And he went around and he talked to everybody he can think of that he knew. And Ken recorded it as well. Okay, yeah. Ken didn't remember who was on the record. He went to Ringo. Ringo didn't remember. George didn't remember. <laughs> he knew that Klaus Vorman played on some of it, but Klaus couldn't remember. And basically, they knew that there was 20, 30 musicians across you know, this three-album set, but they couldn't put their finger on exactly who it was, <laughs> who was playing. So oh my gosh. it just goes to show you that even back in the analog days, that you know there are lots of things that were missed, especially you know the things that people think aren't as important. And it's usually the music- musicians <laughs> <who's> playing. <laughs> That's, oh my god! It's not to laugh, but you're right. It's, it's, I'm laughing because it's the irony. There's nothing more important than a musician, and they're the last person to. You know, get the proper credit. It seems sometimes if if they get credit, but yeah, and that's that's why we um like we created a plugin called Studio Collect P P for plugin. And um, before we get there, let's talk about Viva Sound a little bit and how you got there and what Viva Sound is and what it does. Oh, for sure. Okay. Um, so when there's a capital, we were looking for um a, a solution for Frontline, which is a category of A&R that just deals with new releases, frontline versus catalog, let's say. People might know a lot about that. And we wanted to verify that everything that we were paying producers for was actually delivered because it's pretty expensive and we want to make sure that all those assets that we were asking for end up on the um, the desk of the VP of A&R. And, but we needed a way that um, would systemically um, like verify that every component parts there from a minimum delivery requirement and that we could have a unified naming convention instead of audio underscore O one audio underscore O two, we would have an agreed upon naming convention that, that um, would make those assets discoverable quickly. And then finally we would have to have like short term and long term storage. So if something is frontline, it usually remains frontline for about 18 months and kind of reverts to, or is inherited by catalog, where typically the frontline release lasts about that long because the artist will come back and record another album, or it's had, and the, the life of the singles is probably done by that time. So we needed something for both frontline for immediate use for sync licensing, uh, rights knowledge, publishing knowledge, as well as something for catalog where they could find it really quickly if it has to be repurposed for either um, like compilations or re-releases or anniversaries. 
So we found that in Viva, the company that I'm with now. And that's it's basically exactly what we do. It's a three-part system. We, we verify the, that um, according to the producer's agreement that everything's been delivered. And then once it is, we say to the label, hey, you know, release the money on the back end. We've received everything. And then we do um, uh, validation uh, according to the DDEX standard, uh, the DDEX RIN, um, to make sure it's compatible with all the DSPs. So that part's guaranteed as well. And then we back it up on uh, linear tape open transfer or whatever um, data carrier uh, the label chooses. And it's all, that's all done within the 24 to 48 24 to 48 hours. Wow. I know. It's a pretty, and we, we audition in real time. Like we, we listen, we have production engineers um, that are actual engineers that listen in, in real time to all these component parts. Wow. Cool. How did you get over there then? So I guess that when you were at Universal, then you hired Viva and then it was kind of an easy transition to get over there, right? It's what I would imagine. Yeah, it was, it was a smooth transition because I already knew most of the business model. And then Deborah jokes that when I was doing the procurement exercise, I was the only person of all the companies they worked with that I, I flew to Nashville, sat down with them in their office, and just like fired questions for three days. Some of the stuff she could, she could you know, she could answer a little, little bit of it was proprietary, you know, concepts that that they did um, develop themselves. But you know, she remembers that and. Um, she said one thing that, that struck her was that when we were done, I said, you know, hey, have a night off. I want to go see some live music. Do you have any suggestions? So she loved the fact that as a music lover and, you know, like I wasn't just, you know, in the music, the business part of the music business. I was actually in the music and business part and still an active musician. So, you know, it, it takes a lot to, or it, a lot of people take for granted that when you walk into a label, there's, you know, there's a certain, every label is a certain culture and then uh, studios as well, where you have to be able to talk to these people in a certain way where they can see that you're not an imposter, like you're, you're one of them or you've been there or, so that goes a long way as well. So I think she, you know, she recognized that. And um, but then years later, uh, after I was dean at these universities, she kept it in the back of the mind, her mind as the company was expanding because we're opening up in uh, four offices around the world. Rubbing it up two more, she thought, well, you know, she could be a good choice. So, because I already knew the business model, I knew how it worked, and it was a it was a concept that I believed in so much so that I helped, you know, bring it into Universal. And now I understand more about SCP Studio Collect because now that plugin helps you do your job better, easier, faster. I would think if someone actually follows it and uses that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, can you describe that? Sure, and it's it's actually what you said about five, six minutes ago where when you're talking about Ken and everyone was in the studio, but, but because it wasn't memorialized uh, at, at that point when they were tracking, it's a lot harder to remember four months or 40 years later. So it's a plugin um, that it's DAW agnostic. So it'll, it'll work in uh, Pro Tools or FL Pro or, um, you know, uh, Logic. And you only need one instantiation. You don't have to put it on every single track. You just put it on one track. Uh, usually the master is the most typical. And it's a really simple interface. And um, the uh, the RIN standard is actually something that, that Viva Sound developed oh. that became the DDEX standard. So we were commissioned by the Library of Congress to develop this standard, our, our little, you know, our, our company. Yeah. And now it's been adopted um, 
by all the, the DSPs. Um, so it's, the plugin is completely RIN compatible, meaning if, if someone else is, is using that or needs a, um, a, a RIN delivery, it's guaranteed um, to deliver on that spec. And you can populate as little or as much as you want within those fields about who, what, where, and when. And there's um, creative metadata that you can put in there as well, as well as technical technical metadata like data carrier type, version of the OS, version of your DAW, sample rate, bit depth, samples are used, uh, composers, engineer, uh, location, etc. So the the thing is, uh, people say, oh, it's just more work to do. But we've all been in studios where, and it happens every time where there's there's a bit of a break and all the menus come out. And there's like 15 menus for takeout that are sitting on the, the credenza. And everyone's like, oh, I want sushi, but no, I want this Turkish food. And then that's usually the time where there's, there's a lot of these types of breaks. And it's not the engineer or the producer, because ultimately the producer is the one responsible for the delivery um, with, a, with a major label commitment. You know, the second engineer can probably do this in about you know, five minutes at the most. And it's shareable. So when the next person opens it up in their DAW, it pops up, populates right away. You can also import and export the file and share that way as well. So yeah, it's gonna it's free, which is the whole point because it makes everyone's job easier. And also the the huge benefit is um, with Studio Collect um, P is that the uh, people get proper credit, and proper credit leads to more gigs. Let's say you work on a on an album or some sort of um, music project or audio project, and you're proud of it, and it's really good, and it does really well. Um, no matter what level, what stakeholder participant you were in the process, with proper crediting, you actually get better gigs and you make more money that way, or continue to make money, or hopefully better money. The other part, if you're if you're um, stakeholder, rights holder, rightful ownership, whatever percentage, um, it means the uh, PROs recognize that and send you checks. They know who to send it to. So there's even room for um, your ISNI in there as well, which I suggested everyone goes out and registers for. What is the minimum amount of metadata that you think should be included? That's a great question. I think just who, like who is at least who is on on the on the session, like um, legal name. Uh, the one that they use if they register, and contact information. Because once that's disclosed, um, anyone that's, that's behind, a, behind a computer that's trying to um, you know, divide, divide revenue and send it, out to the, send it out to the proper people, that's the minimum that they need. So whether it's like the name, um, email, uh, telephone number, some uh, management company, uh, any uh, rights organization that they, they belong to. And even if the, the role, and it's so easy to, to state the role because that's just a drop-down menu, but even if you don't get that far, at least you're associated with that project mm. and with that album. Right. So it's credits and cash. That's what it comes down to. Credits lead to cash, and cash is just cash. So those are the two benefits of, of keeping track of that. You mentioned that Universal adopted this, and from the sound of it, some time ago. Do the other major labels use it as well? Yeah, we work for, Vivo works for all three major labels. And um, 
and we're expanding to other territories at the moment. We're going to be opening up offices in Toronto and Sydney soon as well. So we have offices in London, Nashville, New York, and, and Los Angeles. And that's with uh, Sony, UMG, IGA, Capital, and uh, Warner in the UK as well. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I mean, the great thing is like we um, producers love it because once it's there, once it's verified, yes, they delivered, they get put into the net 30 or net 60 queue. Great. Instead of the, the net three years later. Yeah, right. Queue. You know, as as I'm sure you're, you have an ongoing list of, you know, unpaid invoices, but, um, and then A&R love it because we streamline their process and we do, it. within A&R in, in every record label, there's a, there's a department that supports them called A&R admin, it's a whole department of people. And, um, in my view, um, they, they probably, each one of them probably does the work of two or three people uh, from what I've seen. Like they barely have any time. And it's sort of, they don't get a lot of recognition for the work that they do. And they're booking producers and bands and studios and hotels and flights and managing audio and, you know, what variation of what mix and mix engineers and tracking engineers and master engineers across like X amount of bands for plus the management, plus the representation. It's, it's a crazy, crazy gig, uh, all for the betterment of the A&R department. So by doing this for them, uh, it takes a huge load off your plane, and it's really, really cost-effective like for the value of, of what they get. But it makes the audio discoverable. So when they need something really quick, they know exactly where to find it consistently. So wow. it's, uh, it's a great service. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, actually. You know, I've only become aware of it really since uh, the beginning of the year when we first made contact. How long has this been going on? Oh, uh, we started it 17 years ago. Oh, wow. And um, the company, yeah, the company did 17 years ago. Deborah's, Deborah Fairchild has been uh, with the company for 17 years. And a lot of the really cool innovations are, are due to her um, knowledge. She actually had an office in Def Jam in New York City for years trying to better understand exactly how these labels work. And it was, it's a complex system. She figured it out and she figured out the solution. So we're still the only company that really does this. And, uh, and we're always striving to stay, you know, a couple of steps ahead of, um, where digital's going. So it's been great. All right. Well, let's go there for a second. So where is it going? Well, it's just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and <laughs> loaded question. I know. Oh, I know that it is. Um, I've been reading a lot about blockchain and a lot about sidechain, and then I'm I'm following what's going on in the film world because those companies seem to be like a really inclusive bunch of people where they get together. Like seemingly competitive companies will get together and share all this knowledge, and it's not exactly seen as proprietary because everyone benefits from it. So I've seen a couple of these companies pop up for publishing and rights and revenue distribution. And they're using, they're starting to use some blockchain solutions. Now in the music side of it, it's not being uh, fully recognized or some people say it's come and gone already. And some of the blockchain solutions in terms of like tracking provenance has it's been released as a uh, nonprofit service or a free service. So, I'm not sure if it's going to, I'm not sure if it's going to take off in term or, or build into something in terms of tracking, um, uh, rights, rightful ownership and, uh, who the stakeholders were, because it's, 
un, uneditable content in a sense. You can't go back retroactively and change anything. It's as if it's like permanently watermarked step by step. But to build a model out of that, I'm not sure if it's viable in that there's a lot of people that are, or there's some companies I've seen that are coming up that are offering this as a, as a free service service because it's, it's, it's self-sufficient. So when you contribute, um, it's permanent. So I have to wait and see. Yeah. You, you know, I have a problem with blockchain in how it's presented. It's the whole thing where when someone mentions blockchain, all of a sudden investors eyes light up and everybody thinks, so it's a brand new thing. But to me, it's like, I wish it wasn't even mentioned. It's an underlying technology that you're basing an application on. So it's no different than, than C++ or Fortran or, you know, you name the programming language. It's not a language, obviously, but it's the same thing. It's something that we can build a solution on. Multiple applications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think really the way it's being presented is doing a, a disservice to the technology where it could be very powerful. Mm -hmm. But now I know I get so much in every day about blockchain that yeah. right now, as soon as I see that word blockchain, my eyes glaze over. It's like, oh God, not another one of these. I know. I did that this morning. I was doing that too. Yeah. No. But you know, something won't change where like new content's going to be created. And I think the way it's monetized has changed a lot, where it's not just the listening, but it's more through brand partnerships, sync and licensing. That's where um, a lot of the revenue comes from for this music, rather than through just solely a listening experience. That won't change. Yeah. Um, we, we are seeing a ton of changes in terms of where that content's being created, where you know, full-on albums and contributions, um, especially with some type of music, are done in people's bedrooms on people's laptops with headphones and uh which is i think that's becoming more more prevalent a lot of you know project studios are putting out amazing content you know so i think the industry in terms of gear and i think the industry is in reaction in a good way where they're reacting to the fact that you know triangulating yourself between two giant speakers behind 72 channels um is more and more rare and they're, they're actually like honoring the fact that really good music is being created on uh, laptops or like Bob, uh, Bob Margulov, Robert Margulov, sure. right? Yeah. The producer. Yeah. He's, I still seen at, at different events around LA and we talk and stuff and he, I, I got to give him full credit on this one, but he said, or, as far as I know, he said the, the acoustic guitar, the, the laptop is the acoustic guitar of the sixties. It's the, you know, the instrument of re rebellion. So, you know, a copy of, uh, you know, your favorite you know, Reaper, with headphones and the powerful little laptop, it can cause some, you know, serious damage the same way you would do with an acoustic guitar back in, you know, 62, 63. It was a really cool conversation. Yeah. Bob said the same thing on this podcast, actually, uh, probably a couple of years ago. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Okay. So I'm glad I'm accurate that way. That's good. <laughs> I did a couple of things for Spars. I did some interviews with him for Spars, but, uh, Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Huh, small world. Yeah, definitely. Gosh. Definitely. Okay, Drew, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you've ever learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Let's see. I think the most the pivotal moment was I was talking to a CFO. This is like me going from academia into the VP position. And there's a CFO at Capital 
named Colin, and the guy said, you have to learn how to read a P&L, and here's how you do it. And so I'd, I'd meet with him, and they assigned me a financial person, and we, we, I would sit down week after week, and he would talk through things and talk through all the different buckets and all the different, you know, the, the, how it's a sort of a 3D model. And um, if you can't read a P&L, like, you don't really know what's going on. Here's how you read it. So I spent months trying to figure out what that means and what a profit and loss statement actually, you know, how it's a, how, how it can be a barometer of, you know, what's, what's a snapshot of what's going on at the moment and how that can be um, used to, as a fork towards um, a forecasting model as well. And that really, you know, it, and these days with all the online educational content, as well as good old textbooks, you know, I spent about a year trying to figure that out. And I think I can speak pretty, like, I'm pretty fluent when it comes to a P&L now. And that part combined with, like, sitting down with, if I have, if I have any people on my team, and this was told to me years later, I didn't actually quite recognize I was doing it, but any anyone on my team, I want to, the way I think of it, I want to be able to do their job if they're sick that day. Hmm. Uh, short of replacing them because I just don't have the time to do to do that. But sitting down with them, like shoulder to shoulder, and say, "Hey, can you show me that again? Can you explain that to me?" And then taking a step back, where it's not an abstraction of what's actually going on. I really know how this component works within the organization. So I would I would sit with archivists, I'd sit with sales, I'd sit with with uh, marketing, I'd sit with the engineers. You know, spending late nights which I was able to at the time and putting together like a comprehensive view of what it was where I have no shame or pride or anything. My high school dropout, I don't care. I need to learn. So, and I'll ask the stupid questions and I'll sit there for as long as it takes until I understand, you know, what, what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. Sometimes it comes pretty fast. Sometimes it takes a little while, but it's worth it because then I can turn around and explain to somebody if I have to do a, fill out or present capital special expenditures, I can say to a CFO, this is, this is what we need, but here's why we need it. Mm. Here's the gap. Here's, here's, how, here's why we can't absorb. We have to backfill. We have to keep a person in this place because it's integral to these processes. And then I'll, I'll state what they are. So, you know, end to end, or as British people might say, like soup to nuts, you can explain the whole operation in a way where and any question is asked, you know, you have this um, comprehensive view as well as a granular view. So to get back to your question, uh, one was learn what a P&L means, but also to be able to take that P&L as, a, as, a, as not as a two-dimensional Excel sheet, but you know the people that feed into that process and you know exactly what they do when they're sitting behind their desk or when they're in front of a console or something or whatever their role might play. That kind of changed it for me. So it's I can I can sit down in in a couple of different uh, settings and you know carry on a good conversation. So that's awesome, Drew. I never heard anyone explain it quite that way, or maybe few understand it in the same way. I think that may be more the case, actually. Yeah, yeah. There is. And it goes the way what you just said just now, uh, now reminded me of something. We were talking about talking to someone about a week ago about electronic music, and I never had enough time and to take an elective on, you know, the origins of electronic music going back to the 1940s and 50s with the, the European movement that was happening with computers and electronica. So when I was teaching, I thought, you know, 
the, the dean said, hey, can you, can you develop a course or two for electives? And I said, yeah. So I decided to do an electronic music because I knew nothing about it. Mm. Or I did, but I wanted to learn more. And what a better way to learn something, you know, you, you prove that by being able to talk about it. If you can't talk about it freely and ask questions, you just don't know it. I thought, okay, well, I'll get to know it so well, I'm able to teach it. But it's transparent with the students saying, look, it, this is new to me, and this is all the research I've done. Here's all the different ways you can go about it, and this is what, this is what I know. But being able to speak about it in a, in a confident way means that you've learned it. So I thought that's sort of the, the benchmark that I keep. If I can't talk about it, probably means I don't know it as well as I should. You know, if someone talks, tell me, you know, what does ratio really mean? on a compressor, you know, describe Q to me, describe the concept of Q on an EQ. Yeah. If you can, you know, if you can truly, and this is, so, this is stuff that you wrestle with for as long as you've been writing any sort of educational content, because you have to think, okay, who's my audience? Like, like, I mean, you, Bobby, are thinking this. Who's my audience? You know, where are they starting from? My audience, it's an audience of one. It's me. And I'm the same way. I have to be interested in something and... I want to learn something. That's why I write. Yeah. I was talking about you on the way over and it's, it's that quick conversation we had, you said something so inspiring to me, but the last time we talked, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just, you know, if I had to be someone else, I'd want to be Bobby because you said we ended this conversation. We were, when we were talking about the TC um, channel coming up and you said, this is not, this is something I don't know much about. I want to know more about it. I'm like, if that's not a philosophy to live by, I mean, that was, that was the best sentence I've heard all year. I thought it's true. It's the best way to, best way to, if you don't know, find out, yeah. you don't ignore it or pretend that you do, you know, you got to learn more. And then I want to have that sort of, I think that transparency or lack of pretense where it's like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, but you do something about it. I want to learn more myself by myself or talk to me about it. Or can we set up another time? I can find out more. I mean, that's, I, I don't want that to ever change. And like, I want to be 80 and still having that sort of approach to life. So thanks for that. I don't even know if you remember saying that to me, but you did. It was really cool. I do remember it actually. And, and I said it because it was true. <laughs> Had an impact on me. You can find out more about Drew and the Studio Collect plugin at vivasound.com. That's V-E-V-A-S-O-U-N-D, all one word vivasound.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>